I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Sheila Byers. So, Sheila, welcome to the podcast. Now, Sheila, you're a taxonomist. Uh, What on earth is a taxonomist? A taxonomist is someone who classifies organisms. In other words, puts names on them. So some people may be familiar with genus and species names, like, for example, Homo sapiens, which is us. A scientific name for us, the Homo, is the genus, and sapiens is the species. And as I am primarily focused on the marine world and the marine life living in the oceans, uh, uh, my taxonomy involves uh, that associated with marine life. In particular, I'm a specialist in marine worms or polychaetes, or some of you may know it as know them as bristle worms. And yes, they are relatives of those earthworms that live perhaps in your garden. Wonderful. That's really cool. Um, now you've been at this for a while, right? I have. I graduated from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I had a wonderful professor there who, uh, whose course on marine invertebrates I had taken, and I was fortunate enough to get a summer job with him to um, look at specimens that had been taken from the bottom of the ocean, looking through a microscope and sorting all of the different invertebrates. And needless to say, I was captured. (laughs) And uh, it became a job after I graduated. So um, that kept me in Halifax for a few years. Wonderful. Uh, Now, what is it about marine invertebrates that holds your attention? Oh, my. Um, it's, well, I guess I could say growing up on the the East Coast, um, I was also fortunate enough to have a mother who was a teacher, so she had the summers off, and we spent our summers at a cottage on the Northumberland Strait, and I was barefoot in bathing suit pretty much all day, exploring the beaches, and looking at the curious jelly jellies, the uh, dead squid that would occasionally get washed up on shore. I would even see worms crawling along in the eelgrass, which pretty much blew my mind. And um, yeah, it just became part of my everyday activity. And then following up with that at university, although I was tempted by another prof uh, who taught an excellent course on um, vertebrates. I was really torn between which which I would take, but I did be- basically because of my experience on on the intertidal area of of 
outside our cottage that I, I really, I just chose the marine invertebrates. They're spectacular. And because I had the opportunity to actually look at them under a microscope, then it's a, an explosion of a whole new world of incredible different parts of bodies, et cetera, that just um, showed uh, the adaptations of these organisms and how they can manage to live in um, just a nearshore area that pretty much everybody can look at. Wonderful. Excellent. Now, you mentioned you did some schooling at Dalhousie. Um, what other training did you have? I, that is my degree in zoology. And uh, apart from working with Dr. Eric Mills, who was the professor that uh, I worked with um, at the time, uh, after leaving that job, I did work at the uh, Bedford Institute of Oceanography just across the harbor in Dartmouth. Had a bit more experience in working with flocks or flocculent, actually organic flocculent materials uh, which one of the researchers there was um, learning more about. And so that kind of exposed my brain to some interesting living carbon materials, but not actually living organisms as such. So my uh, experience was broadening to understand and appreciate the organic material in the ocean and what that meant to everything that lived on the bottom. What's flocculent material? So it is organic materials that kind of glue together, not so much really glue, but uh, connect together um, dead organisms, uh, decomposing organisms that fo form these flocks. And they do, uh, they do move around with currents in the ocean and eventually settle out on the bottom, but uh, essentially become part of the food web of many plankton or even organisms that live on the bottom of the ocean, like the marine invertebrates or what we would call benthic organisms living on the bottom of the ocean. Keep going with your, your own history. Oh, my own history. Okay, so I decided to move uh, west at one point in my career. And well, I guess after working at the Bedford Institute and um, made a brief stop in Ottawa. Uh, and there wasn't enough ocean there. So I kept moving west uh, to Vancouver and landed in Victoria where I was lucky enough to get a job with a consulting firm who worked on, um, on ocean studies, a lot of environmental monitoring studies, and I was hired specifically to work on polychaetes, so that was rather exciting. In fact, I took my very first uh, course on polychaetes at Banfield Marine Station, so um, I was responsible for any of the specimens that were brought in from uh, these monitoring studies um, to identify taxonomy, uh, the polychaetes that were in those samples. Now, I should go back a second and just say when I was at Dalhousie, 
uh, and working with Dr. Eric Mills, I learned a lot about sampling gear used to collect specimens on the bottom of the ocean. So for example, grabs that kind of look like a clamshell or sleds, literally, they look like sleds and they are dragged along the bottom of the ocean or anchor dredges, another me method of uh, sampling specimens on the bottom of the ocean. So I, I really kind of got my exposure to how you collect benthic bottom-dwelling organisms. And so that was continued on the West Coast in terms of uh, these sampling um, projects that we undertook at the consulting firm uh, called Rocky Sea Tech. And with them, I basically traveled up and down the coast all the way up to Alice Arm at the northern end of BC. Um, I had opportunity to do some sampling off the west coast of Vancouver Island, so on some of the really large research vessels, one of which was the J.P. Tully that is still here today, uh, still in operation today, but it was the same vessel that I had been on out of Dalhousie on a trip up to Labrador. So it's kind of interesting to just um, see that ship's been around for a while as well. <laughs> and then you also did some time at the ROM. Ah, right. Okay. So in, I think it was probably the 80s, uh, the economy started to take a bit of a nosedive. And um, actually, the Rocky Sea Tech folded. So I moved to Vancouver, did some consulting on my own, and then had another incredible opportunity for a position at the Royal Ontario Mu Museum in Toronto. And so I moved there uh, in 1986 and spent 10 years in the Department of Zoology there uh, as the collections, collections manager um, and processing all kinds of specimens, not just worms, but entire collections, uh, and also dealt with uh, freshwater organisms um, through the uh, uh, natural resources branch, provincial natural resources branch, I think, that uh, donated a huge collection of freshwater invertebrates to the ROM. So, um, and I also had many opportunities to uh, keep up my contacts with the polychaetes and had, uh, I would say, some rather incredible trips to the international polychaete conferences, which were held all over the world, uh, including France, uh, Denmark. I went to China on that account. Um, yes, so polychaetes were still part of my love of marine invertebrates, and they still are. So many opportunities at the ROM. I really, really enjoyed that, the, my time there until I said that the tide was going out on Lake Ontario when I was standing on the shore one day, and I decided, oops, time to leave. So I then, after 10 years at the ROM, moved back to Vancouver, which is where I am now. And you come to be a, a friend of the PME through uh, your work at the Beattie Biodiversity Museum. 
indeed I do. Uh, so I have been with the BD Biodiversity Museum for 10 years as a museum interpreter. Um, actually, I should say I started as a volunteer there uh, and then was hired a few years later uh, as a museum interpreter and um, was involved with the school programming and talking with visitors all about biodiversity, education, uh, students coming in for classes, all sorts of fun uh, programs like that. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's amazing when you get an international audience or visitors coming in who have similar concerns about where they live and what they're seeing happening, for example, whether it's with abalone or whether it's with fishing, all sorts of very interesting conversations. So I, I really enjoyed that um, opportunity. Yeah, you mentioned these international conferences on polychaetes. Um, I guess they're a global phenomenon, something that everyone around the world can get together and chat about. Yes, quite unique, quite a strong group. It's only about 100 people, I would say. Now that might be a bit outdated. But uh, yes, people from all over the world would travel to these conferences. Um, for example, next year, actually it was supposed to be this year, uh, there was a conference in to be held in South Africa. They're generally only held every second year. Um, but uh, I was rather liking travel and I thought, wow, South Africa, <laughs> never been to Africa. So it was at the back of my mind, but unfortunately it has been canceled one more year, but perhaps in 2023, I will get that opportunity. So yes, very interesting. These are people who have, have dedicated their entire lives to learning uh, about the natural history of worms and describing them. So more uh, classification or taxonomy of who are they, because some worms are very specific to some particular habitats. For example, um, under fish farms, we have found on this coast, uh, and this was one of my little discoveries, I guess I could say, as a consultant, a tiny little fuzzy white worm. It looked like a flat ball of wool, flattened ball of wool, um, that was very abundant under the fish farms, and it uh, turned out later to be a new species. Um, not done by me, but uh, uh, as I was a subcontractor, but that was in fact a new species found to exist in these very highly organic habitats. So discoveries made all, all the time. Polychaetes are extremely abundant. There's well over 600 species on the West Coast, um, and they're found in virtually every habitat, primarily marine, but there are a few freshwater, um, maybe one or two terrestrial, but primarily freshwater, uh, or I, sh I should say primarily marine, but nonetheless very abundant. And like the earthworms, they, they turn over the sediment at the bottom of the ocean, which means that they're helping to provide oxygen or moving oxygen in and out of those sediments that help other organisms grow. So amazing that worms can be so uh, important to, to our sediments. 
And yes, you can find polychaetes that are maybe one millimeter in size or one meter in length. So everything, every size in between, they are fascinating. And every shape apparently too. Um, every shape. I've never thought of a worm as being a ball. At what point does it stop being a worm? Oh, sorry. So ball may have been the wrong description. I'm thinking of a ball of yarn okay. or wool, I should say. But it just looked very fuzzy as though you had, a, I guess I could say, a very thick yarn of wool that was stretched out so it was flat, but really kind of fuzzy looking and white, you know, like just, uh, it was like, good heavens, this is just a piece of wool. And then it's no, it's not. It's an actual, it's an actual worm. So, oh my goodness, yes, scales on back of backs of worms, huge crowns of tentacles, lots of little bristles along this along uh, out of extending out of their feet that help them move through the sediments. Some are in tubes. Some are in what we would call parchment tubes. Some are in calcareous carbonate tubes. I could go on. Do you have a favorite one? Ooh. Oh my. Um, I'm having lots of images in my head at the moment. I can't pick one, except maybe, if I can think of the, the name of them actually, hydrothermal vent worms, which do inhabit uh, tubes and have this incredible plume uh, or tentacles at the head end that are brilliant red, and they can grow a meter, actually maybe even more than a meter, and they live in extremely, uh, extreme habitats of intense heat and intense um, minerals coming out of the smokers. So I would have to say that they are, they're, they're just, mind-blowing and how they could possibly live in such an environment. So that kind of stands out in my mind. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm sure the volcanologists will be uh, thrilled to hear that. Yeah. Well, yes. And actually, there have been many more species described from those areas. So quite interesting adaptations, as I have described, uh, noted for these marine uh, worms. Now, um, Sheila, I know that most career paths can be fairly circuitous. Um, people face setbacks or change directions mid-career. Uh, you mentioned that you've done that a little bit when you started interpreting or guiding at the Beauty Biodiversity Museum, but have you faced any other uh, challenges in your career? Well, yes. Um, I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast by, by choice. And... Um, once here, I think I also mentioned that uh, the economy uh, pretty much all over the world took a bit of a decline in as it, as it does apparently in a fairly, I don't know, 10, 20 year basis. Um, and consulting on my own uh, was tricky, uh, but it was necessary at the time. Uh, but when the opportunity came up to apply for this job at the ROM, I certainly jumped on that. Um, I think I was fortunate in the sense that during those years, jobs were fairly uh, abundant. 
in the sense of uh, availability. So I did and was able to move around a bit that way. And so although I had an incredible uh, journey at the ROM, I did choose to move back from there to, uh, from, yes, from there to Vancouver um, and did some more consulting uh, here. But when the position uh, or the opportunity to volunteer at the, the BD came up, which is when it opened in 2010, I, I was um, just very much interested in museums and what they do to help educate people. So that kind of drew me back here. Um, I could also just say, I think that I liked to travel and these jobs always seem to take me places that I had not been to before. And going out on research vessels was a whole nother thrill. And so I just kept wanting to learn and that's what kept me going. Wonderful. Um, speaking of which, with your research and your work, have you made any uh, discoveries that you'd care to share? You did mention one. Yes, of the of the the, the little fuzzy worm, uh, fuzzy white worm. Um, uh, so my my work as a taxonomist, uh, I have worked a lot with the polychaete species on the west coast to learn that there are many what we would call species here that were named after species that occurred in the Atlantic. So in all of this time since, I guess we could say, well, really the 80s, um, there's still an awful lot of work needing to be done on the polychaetes but we, because we're learning that they are not the same species as those that live in the Atlantic Ocean but uh, are very unique to the Pacific Ocean. So I have not been able to delve into the actual writing up of uh, species descriptions to a great extent, um, but rather just processing uh, specimens and writing reports as a contractor would. So no, I can't say that I specifically discovered anything other than that particular little um, fish farm worm. Still, it sounds like a really exciting little little worm. Yeah. And, and there is a, a wonderful group out here called SCAMET, the Southern California Association of Marine Invertebrate Taxonomists uh, that are very strong and are working uh, very in intently on redescribing a lot of these worm species. So I, I do stay in touch with that sort of thing. But I should say I didn't work only with worms. My, my uh, jobs always had an exposure to a number of different organisms. So for example, um, I did get the opportunity to do um, a number of trips that involved fish. So if I can jump to a, an example of one that took me to Tuktoyaktuk in the Arctic Ocean, uh, it was specifically to see what coastal fish were basically in swimming around or near shore in a harbor coming into Tuktoyaktuk because of 
uh, work by an oil industry. Uh, so the company was Dome Petroleum. Uh, I think they were bought out or have been bought out some time ago by Omeco, something along those lines. Um, but nonetheless, they had a, a camp in Taktoyaktak and that camp needed supplies. And so the they, um, DFO, I believe, was uh, trying to understand whether or not there would be any impacts on the marine life in that harbor if it were to be dredged. So we, and this was with Debraki SeaTech, um, uh, we traveled to Taktoyaktak and uh, proceeded to do beach sands. Well, yeah, beach sands around, actually, sorry, it was not beach sands, it was a fish sane uh, around. What's a fish sane? Well, it's rather than being in the water, dropping it in and then pulling it out from the shore, you're actually um, deploying it from a vessel, fishing vessel. You're still near shore. But if the shore happens to get a little bit deep, <laughs> uh, which it would was there, so the beach sand would be more difficult to actually do. So this one was just deployed from the uh, the vessel itself, and the size of the mesh of the net was a little bit wider than what we would probably have used if it was a beach sand. Uh, and so we uh, captured fish and identified them and wrote, wrote up the reports, all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, it, this was in August. And I do remember a, how cold it was getting, August and then in, into September. And the ice was forming on that second trip up. Ice was forming on the surface and we were in this small aluminum 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 boat and in spite of all of the sizes of vessels that I have been on I was rather nervous about the incredible cracking sound of this vessel traveling through the ice and I did not like the temperature of the ocean and I was quite concerned um, that we were not going to make it back to shore but Indeed, the captain was quite comfortable with his aluminum vessel in these conditions, so I just stopped worrying and let him <laughs> do the worrying. <laughs> but it was quite uh, quite an experience doing that. Um, and Taktoyaktak was amazingly, amazingly interesting. I love that. You've done research in all three oceans that border on Canada. I have. Um should I tell you about my trip up to Nain Bay? Absolutely. So I should say with that uh, job at Dalhousie, we did collect specimens off the Scotian Shelf. And one trip we went to Nain Bay in Labrador, or now called Newfoundland in Labrador. Um, stopped in Newfoundland along the way and immediately got in and compassed by a hurricane, which followed us all the way up the coast <laughs> until we sought refuge in Nain Bay. And everybody wanted a little bit of time on land to get our land legs back as opposed to our sea legs after the hurricane weather. Um, 
And uh, a couple of us got off the vessel. Well, actually, a number of us got off from the vessel and decided to hike this huge bluff that was overlooking the uh, the harbor area. And uh, another friend of mine that was on the trip, a, a female researcher, she was doing her PhD. Uh, we went hiking along this bluff and we were up on top and heading back towards or in the direction of the bay when we heard this incredible bawling sound, like a, a very loud crying, different kind of baby. And uh, it was so loud that we just froze. Fortunately, we were near a very large boulder. And as it turns out, we were downwind of what turned out to be a family of black bears. Mama was running directly towards us with three cubs following one of those cubs being some distance behind. And that was the one that was doing all the yelling, wait for me. I assumed it was crying. So we just kind of melted into this boulder in hopes that they would not discover us, smell us or otherwise until they did pass by about less than 20 feet to our right. And we were, I'm sure, not breathing at the time, at least until they moved by. Uh, and sighed a great uh, sigh of relief because we had some distance to walk. We didn't know exactly how to get down off the bluff, so we were following our nose that way. And we didn't particularly want to come across mother and cub cubs again. So that was a very exciting moment on the tundra in Nain Bay. Uh, again, a very interesting small uh, indigenous village. So uh, in spite of the hurricanes, um, yes, we did not see any caribou. Uh, we did see some from the uh, J.P. Tully uh, research vessel, and we also saw a polar bear in the water swimming. So, and to my mind, we got a little bit too close to the bear, um, just for its own safety. Um, but anyway, that was one very interesting uh, part of Canada that I had not seen and experienced. That sounds gorgeous. It was wonderful. By the way, do you get seasick? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those things that, um, so having grown up on the beach and having lots of boat rides uh, uh, around the cottage, uh, I had no problem on vessels at all. Uh, but when you get into storms, it can become a whole new level of balancing and your ear and your eye take some time to adapt. Um, so the hurricanes that we went through on that particular trip were not pleasant for just about everybody on the, the vessel, actually. Uh, and there are various types of um, medications that you can take. But you generally do, after three or four days, get accustomed to the the ocean and the waves uh and it tends to be okay so i mean I, I i can get sick on some trips that 
you know, I never thought I would. On the other hand, I have been out on hurricanes in the West Coast and was up on the bridge with the captain having a great time. So it really varies, uh, not only with individuals, but with your own uh, ability to uh, basically adapt to the uh, the ocean swells. Yeah. It's good news that um, even if you suffer from uh, seasickness, you can still be a marine biologist. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's yeah, a whole new experience. What are you working on right now? Right now, I am working on the uh, collections, the actual collections of the marine invertebrate collection in the BD Biodiversity Museum, as opposed to interacting with the public, although I still do some of that, um, to reorganize and incorporate a new uh, collection that was donated to the marine invertebrate collection. So lots of hands-on looking at mollusks, lots of tropical, beautiful tropical mollusks, and um, trying to incorporate uh, this new donation, which is of BC mollusks. Uh, so lots of hands-on activity. Uh, yeah, just again, seeing the incredible diversity of mollusks or the shelled organisms like clams and um, snails and octopus and all those cool marine mollusks. I bet the tropical ones are very uh, colorful. Very colorful, very ornate, and some can be quite large. Um, I think there was a recent donation to this, uh, just individual donation of a huge giant clam, which... Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Uh, oh, Robinson Crusoe, long time ago, who used one of these giant clam shells as his sink in his treehouse. So also known as the man-eating clams, which of course is not quite true, but <laughs> like most clams, if they're irritated, they will close their two valves to protect themselves. So yeah, tons and tons of uh, biodiversity or just diversity of the uh, mollusks. Um, and yes, just having lots of fun. And in terms of that giant clam, I think you mean literally tons. <laughs> yes, yes, literally tons. Like it's, uh, well, picture your kitchen sink. It's probably easily that width and probably the same depth and the shell is very, very thick, so it does weigh a lot. I, I would not be able to lift up the one that was uh, donated recently. Excellent. Now, I'm curious, um, why, why do we do taxonomy? What's its uh, importance? Well, if we don't know what the individual organisms, um, who they are, what they do, and how they live, then we don't really understand what their importance is in terms of their um, life in the ocean, for example. So perhaps I'll give the example of glass sponge Glass sponges, which is uh, uh, another marine invertebrate that I'm very interested in. So lots of people know sponges. 
These are literally built of silica or, or silicon dioxide, which is like glass and so very fragile. But these glass sponges build incredible reefs. And when the word reef is used, we tend to think of coral reefs. So similar in the same of age, because the glass sponge reefs are very old, but it is a completely different marine invertebrate. And in building these reefs, or what we could call an ecosystem, that ecosystem of many, many glass sponges living together supports many other organisms, whether it's rockfish or lingcod or crabs, uh, tiny little uh, squat lobsters, all kinds of organisms that depend on that reef. So if we don't understand the glass sponges, the individual species of glass sponges, and how they function and what they contribute to that ecosystem, then we are not appreciating the imp their importance in that ecosystem and everything else that depends on it. So taxonomy really helps us understand nature in general. Uh, if we were to think for a minute just about terrestrial species and maybe jump to the warming climate that we're finding and that warm warming climate moving further north, north um, are these, for example, plant species. They may only have a specific range uh, north to south that they are well adapted to, but if that uh, is partly dependent on temperature and the temperature is moving further north, does that mean that those plant species might also move further north, or maybe they are not able to move, or able in the sense of will not survive moving further north, or the southern extension of their range, maybe they will no longer be able to live there because it's now too hot. So temperature is one example of how species may or may not be affected by warming temperatures, may or may not survive and adapt. And that is totally dependent on the individual species. And so that's why it gets back to taxonomy and learning the individual species and what their uh, adaptive abilities are, where their preferred habitats are, et cetera. So that applies not only on land, but in the ocean and um, sponges are another example of that. Will they be able to handle warming water temperatures? And that's something that uh, researchers are trying to discern at the moment. And just to bring that home, uh, these glass sponge reefs actually have the ability to pump water through their bodies to get their food but in the process of doing that, they are actually turning over the entire volume of the uh, Strait of Georgia and Howe Sound something like four, four times. Oh boy, I'm going to get the, the, the numbers wrong here. But very frequently, they are basically cleaning and circulating the water in the Strait of Georgia and Howe Sound on a very regular basis. 
that is not only a benefit to all the other organisms that are living in those areas, but to us as well, uh, in terms of, of uh, cleaning the water, but also cleaning their ecosystem where a lot of other organisms live that we fish, for example. So it's all about connectivity, biodiversity and how everything is interconnected. And uh, we depend a whole lot on things in the ocean, uh, well, nature in the ocean, nature on land. So that's an important concept for us to keep in our mind. And isn't it true that you can actually um, identify relationships based on scientific names? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yep. So it's kind of like a, a code. Yes, it's, it is. It's like a code. Uh, let's see if I can... Uh... You're not just giving out these names willy-nilly. No, no, heavens no. No, no. Um, they, they, uh, well, gosh, um, trying to think of a good example to use there. Uh, there are different, many different, um, okay, let me think of fossil records of glass sponges, which exist on land in Europe. I think at the time, uh, uh, Manfred, uh, oh goodness, I'm going to forget his name now. Um, I think identified taxonomy, identified about 152 fossil sponges that used to live in the reefs that existed some 40 million years ago. So when he was in, uh, invited to, uh, or learn about the discoveries of these glass sponges in BC, uh, he was not only astounded that there were living glass sponges around, but it turns out that nowadays there's really, modern days, there's really three primary glass sponge species, maybe four, and there may be a few more that are in the process of being described. Uh, so that's quite different from 40 million years ago when there were about 152 species. What happened? And actually everybody thought that the reefs had totally gone extinct until uh, those in the Hecate Strait area were discovered in around the 19, uh, 1986, 1987. Manfred, oh gosh, sorry, I'm going to forget his name. Manfred Crowter, I believe, is the professor. Uh, in Europe who had studied the fossil specimens. Um, so very specific characteristics for each of these spe species. Um, and each has its own little natural history in the sense of where it's most well adapted. Um, they may extend one species, one of those three species may extend further north than the others. Uh, so, for example, in the Hecate Strait area, um, three species were discovered there, whereas in Howe Sound in the Strait of Georgia, only two of those glass sponge species have been found. So you see there's, there's some kind of adaptive capability that has allowed two of those three species to, to grow and, and survive in the reefs here, in the lower mainland, I guess you could say, as opposed to in that uh, Hecate Strait, Queen Charlotte Sound area. 
So hopefully that helps to explain um, why it's important to understand the individual species, uh, such as these three sponge species, where one is one of those three is very well adapted to the environmental conditions, perhaps of op open ocean area in Hecate Strait and the Queen Charlotte Sound area, while uh, the other two species of the three are easily adapted to that same environment, but perhaps better adapted to the Strait of Georgia and Howe Sound area. And in part, that may have to do with suspended sediments. Some of, the, some of those species are better adapted at um, handling the concentration of uh, suspended sediments, whereas perhaps the third one is not. And so it just cannot live in these uh, uh, Hecate, sorry, the Howe uh, uh, Sound and Strait of Georgia area, which has a lot of tidal movement and therefore a lot of susp sus suspended sediments that are moving in and out every day. Wonderful. I'm sure our sedimentologists will be really interested to hear about that. Yes, sediment transport. It's, it's incredibly important. Yes, and also in part because we have the Squamish River uh, coming into Howe Sound, so that's lots of sediment traveling down that river. Plus we have the Fraser River influence with huge amounts of sediments that are traveling down there and uh, getting moved through the Strait of Georgia and out through the Juan de Fuca Strait. So lots of, of influences from rivers when you're uh, in, in the kind of geological area that we are with, with the Strait of Georgia. So our Salish Sea in general, we could say. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Now, Sheila, you're clearly very passionate about your work, uh, but what's the best aspect of, of your work? What do you love the most? Learning. It just seems that there's so much to learn. Uh, and the more I learn, the more I put pieces of puzzles together of uh, the interconnectedness of all life whether it's in mer in the marine world or on the on the land and it builds helps me to build a picture of how nature works how nature survives and our as in humans position within that puzzle and how it has made me recognize that we are a very small piece of this puzzle and yet we have a huge dependence on nature particularly and i'll again be biased towards the ocean particularly on the marine life in the ocean so if we depend on these uh, aspects of nature so much, why would we not protect it? And I think, um, well, there's been lots of exciting events going on in BC and now in Illinois of examples of changing climate and the impacts that it has on us. So that to me, just is telling us how 
how very much more important it is for us to be paying attention to what we are doing or how we are impacting on nature. So um, the pieces of the puzzle, you know, through time I've, I've learned the important parts of that bigger picture rather than just, you know, my tiny little circle. It puts me into a bigger, bigger picture of, of how and the need for us to uh, better protect, be more careful about what we're doing in terms of impacting nature and what we can do to um, minimize that, minimize our footprint in all aspects um, so that we are truly a part of nature as opposed to just onlookers. Certainly the ocean is the largest environment on our planet and has a huge impact on on us, even if we don't realize it. Uh, just like you were saying, the sponges are constantly uh, invisibly at work cleaning uh, the Strait straight of Georgia. And uh, if we don't know about it, we can't appreciate it. And perhaps the more recent local example is the uh, heat wave that uh, passed through in uh, late June, early July, and the incredible impact they had on mussels. How many of us eat mussels? You know, so do we need to be thinking about that? Like, will we lose the ability to uh, uh, eat mussels that need the ocean to grow in? Um, where are they going to grow? Or how long is it going to take them to uh, repopulate? Will they repopulate? Will they be able to repopulate in the same areas? Right? So lots of things to think about there. And that's, that's really when, you know, mussels are easy to get a hold of. Why would we pay attention to all of this other stuff? Well, that's a pretty good example. The heat wave going through, it's probably not going to be the last one. What's the worst part of your your job or the most challenging? Getting seasick is not always fun. <laughs> <laughs> but that you can adjust to. Um, taxonomy requires a lot of microscope work. And in the days when I was doing most of my uh, taxonomic work, my microscopes were not exactly the most ergonomically exact. So it was hard on my eyes and on my neck and on my back after spending hours of time on the microscope. As thrilling as it was in investigating the details of all these little polygates. Um, but nowadays those the, the 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 microscopes have been redesigned, I would say, to be much more uh, adaptable to. So at the time, I think that was the most difficult or yeah, the, the most challenge to me was uh, spending long hours on on the uh, on the microscope. Um, uh, I wouldn't exactly call it a, a a bad thing, but marine biology in general or oceanography, you go whenever the vessel is booked or whenever your field trip is booked. It does not matter about the weather. Uh, you just do it uh, because that's when it has to be done. And so, you know, you can get wet, you can get cold, you can be you know, up to your knees in mud, whatever, 
Uh, but that's all part of the outdoors aspect of, uh, of my work or, and the work that I've done. But it doesn't make it any less attractive, really. You just have to be prepared and dressed for it. It's literally hell or high water. It's hell or high water. <laughs> exactly. Now, Sheila, I'm curious. Uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, do you feel like that's impacted your studies or your career? When I started at Dalhousie, I, uh, or I, perhaps I should say when I started working, uh, there were not always a lot of females on the research vessels when I was out at sea, but there were some. Um, certainly, I had been on lo lots of uh, field trips. For example, the one to Tuktal Yuktuk when I was the only female and why I got to stay in a separate hotel as compared to all of the men working uh, on Dome Petroleum that had an entire camp uh, for them to stay in. You know, so there were, there were some examples like that. Um, nowadays, I think that has changed. I think there's, there's many more people, sorry, many more females that are involved in outdoor work, marine uh, biology or oceanography in general. Why not? It's fascinating. Um, so I think that that has changed, um, but perhaps a little bit more noticeable when I first started in my career. Glad yeah. it's getting better. Glad there are more. Yeah, definitely. It, like I say, why not? It's fascinating work. So yes. <laughs> Uh, do you feel like taxonomy is a really open and welcoming field, or is it a little more closed and insular? You mentioned that with these international conferences, there are only maybe 100 people who show up. Yeah. So, actually, I should uh, perhaps express that better. 100 people who actually do polychaete taxonomy. So, just in terms of working on polychaetes, there's not a huge number. I suspect that may have changed actually since the last uh, conference that I have been to, um, but also getting the funding to travel, you know, whether from Vancouver to uh, China or France, you know, that's that's a high cost. So some people, even if they are polychaete taxonomists, may not be able to travel that distance. Uh, but certainly there was a good representation of, of, uh, of people from all over the world at at those conferences, I uh, those they were quite amazing. Uh, in terms of you know locally and thinking of UBC, um, you know I think I would join the group of uh, the 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 movement I guess I would say towards incorporation of more BIPOC people and more um, uh, LGBTQ uh, representation that I think may have been lacking in the past or less welcomed in the past. Although I have to say in some locations that I have worked, um, I have worked with people of all diversity. So I don't know, maybe I was just lucky in the places that I worked that it was a bit more welcoming or was in the right place at the right time. But I, I'm glad to see that movement well underway and, and better supported these days. Yeah. Um, now you've been, working through COVID, right? You were even uh, guiding at the BD through COVID. Indeed. So initially, of course, when 
Uh, most uh, large institutions were closed. Um, I'm saying in March of 2020. Is that about right? Yes, I think so. Um, so uh, the museum interpreter group um, moved to working at home. So we were all basically working out of our our homes during that time. But then when uh, the pandemic and the virus got more in control during the summer of 2020, we did, or I should say the, the Beattie Museum was opened again, you know, with strict uh, CDC and UBC protocols. So then we moved back on a gradual basis uh, with the open uh, museum and reduced numbers allowed within the museum and uh, masks being worn, etc. So we did, we did, and were able to come back at that time, which was good. But I, I think it's, um, you know, it's not it. There weren't uh, as many visitors as we would have seen in previous years, but that certainly has started to come back in 2021. So we are still following close protocols, um, but definitely looking forward uh, to more interaction with the public, which of course is what the museum is um, really good at doing. I saw some of your virtual presentations and they were very interesting. Great. Yes. That, that was a learning curve, I have to say, <laughs> as I think it was for many people. Um, but fun to do because, you know, now we're learning that that opens up a whole nother avenue to uh, ways of interacting with the public. But I still have to say that one of the advantages of the BD and, and certainly um, with the interpreter side is with volunteers and interpreters able to get really um, one on one with visitors allowing the visitors to get hands-on. Um, I think that's slowly now being uh, one of the, something that's possible, whereas we had to not do that for probably well over a year. I think that's now coming back. Um, but hands-on specimens, it, it's, it's so important. Uh, the touching, uh, the ability to actually understand an aspect of that uh, specimen or species in particular that you're talking about, whether it's a bird or a clam or, you know, a crab, something like that. Getting the touch and, and learning more about its natural history, it makes, it makes a stronger impression on individuals, I think, and that, that allows them to start thinking about them perhaps in a little bit more detail and, and, uh, you know, what they're all about and maybe doing some discovery on their own to learn more. I completely yeah. agree. It, nothing like being in person, but yeah. I do have to give the BD credit for uh, helping us with our online programming. And uh, yeah, we were spinning our wheels for a bit and you dug us out. <laughs> well, I mean, my goodness, that's, that's, uh, um, that those are my supervisors and my bosses and those people that have really, I think moved things forward uh, in the museum in terms of outreach, and um, for example, the um, 
I love another, not only the aspect that we're incorporating recent uh, organisms with the fossil organisms, which is a huge connection to what has traveled over time, let's say. And I think that that's a, a, a fascinating combination and, and uh, definitely needed. But I also like that the BD has encouraged um, not just science, but art. And for those who haven't seen the uh, curious world of, of seaweeds, the um, spectacular exhibition that is now up, or exhibit that is now up, uh, it's absolutely incredibly gorgeous. And um, so our, our design and uh team has done a fantastic job and we get lots of students coming in that want to draw. Um, many of our uh, specimens that are shown in the cabinets uh, or in the lab. So I love that connection of art, science, and fossils. It kind of covers the whole spectrum, I guess you could say, whole spectrum of life. That new exhibit is stunning. It's absolutely it's, wonderful. It's amazing, yeah. Now, you've painted a really exciting picture of what it is to be a marine biologist and a taxonomist. Um, what advice would you have for young people who maybe want to follow in your uh, footsteps? Oh, well, I followed my heart. There was something about the ocean that was pretty deep inside, so I followed the ocean. <laughs> in other words, follow your heart. Uh, be willing to travel because sometimes you may need to find whatever you're interested in somewhere other than where you're living. So I think you need to be open to traveling or moving and um, experience new things. Take new jobs that expand your horizons and see whether that fits. If that doesn't fit, then try something else. But as long as you're willing to learn and have the capacity to move around and, and change locations, then I think that that's always a good thing to do, to gain experience and to uh, find that little niche that works for you. That's perfect advice from a taxonomist. Find your niche. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I've found mine. <laughs> well, on that note, Sheila, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Uh, did I miss anything, or is there anything you want to add before I let you go? Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't think so. We've covered a lot. I Yeah, I guess I would just emphasize that nature is beautiful. I think that's what attracts us. Now all we have to do is realize the importance of nature and do our best and our part to protect it as best as we can. And then it will also make all of us and our world a happier place to live. That's some more great advice. Thanks for sharing your, your passion and your stories and uh, your knowledge. You're welcome. Thank you. Very happy to participate. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, 
our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.